1: This is the Den of Geek podcast featuring commentary on the latest news from denofgeek.com as well as other behind-the-scenes content from your favorite movies, TV shows, and more. My name is Mike.
2: And I'm Dave, and this is episode three, the late edition of G News for February 2018. And we've got everything from Oscars buzz to Stargate Revival News and even more than
1: that. In fact, our bonus item this month is Daniel Curlin's interview with Mitch Pileggi of The X-Files, and he had a nice little episode that featured a bit of backstory for him just before the hiatus, and uh, The X-Files season 11's been going good, so hopefully you'll be able to enjoy uh, Daniel Curlin's interview a little bit later. But we've got a lot of cool news that has come out in the past couple of weeks for the end of February, so let's get right into it with the news from this week.
2: Hi right, Mike, now that Melissa Benoist's portrayal of Supergirl on CW the past few years has, you know, proven relatively successful, it's only natural that more of the well-known DC superheroes receive an opportunity for a presence outside the comic world. So, we've been hearing a lot of buzz about Batgirl and and don't get me started about the ill-fated Birds of Prey on the well, it was before the CW, I guess it was the WB, but Lately, we've been hearing a lot about who's going to sit in the director's chair. And Joss Whedon has stepped away from the forthcoming Batgirl movie. And with him stepping down, the Internet's abuzz with predictions for who's going to replace him with this D.C. property. And, you know, while Whedon leaving the project's a big loss, there's a lot of possible successors out there because, hey, this is Batgirl. Yeah. And there are a lot. Of really accomplished women directors out there so you know maybe it's time to put the boys club on hold for this project
1: <laughs> yeah for sure
2: so who are we going to consider now obviously this is all speculation stuff that's out there on the internet i don't think at this point n- anybody really knows other than the uh people that are writing the checks but rachel Talley, who has directed episodes of arrow legends of tomorrow the flash but i think A lot of us know her more from her work with Doctor Who and Sherlock. So, you know, if you're looking for somebody with big screen experience, you know, maybe you go to somebody like Catherine Bigelow. I mean, she won an Oscar for The Hurt Locker.
1: That's right. Uh, Yeah,
2: She directed Zero Dark Thirty, Point Break. I mean, she'd be perfect for Batgirl.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of good choices out there from TV and movies. So, you know, you've got a wealth of opportunity these days, and they're really starting to come into the limelight, uh, these women directors.
2: Yeah. And, and while Talele and Bigelow are relatively familiar names for most people, there are a number of other qualified directors out there that could move into the director's chair. Lexi Alexander's directed on Arrow and Supergirl and directed Punisher Warzone. Ava DuVernay who directed The Beloved, A Wrinkle in Time, which is due to be released later this year and even been linked to the future Star Wars films. And since Batgirl's No doubt going to kick some major ass. Let's not forget Karen Kusama, who directed Aeon Flux, Girl Fight, and Jennifer's Body. Seems a natural fit to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a great list. This is the one that Katie Burt put together, correct?
2: It It is. So if you're interested in reading more of this article, it's titled The Directors We Want for the Batgirl Movie, as you said, by Katie Burke, who looks at nine women directors who she think would be perfect for this foray into the Gotham City world.
1: Right. There's a lot of talk about women directors and how they should get a chance in the Star Wars chair. And you mentioned that Ava DuVernay is is one of the people that's been considered for that spot. And I'm really looking forward to Wrinkle in Time. But It's true for Batgirl as well. I mean, why wouldn't you put a woman director in a property with a female superhero? It seems like a a natural fit. So great list that Katie put together. All right. And my first thing that I'm going to be talking about for this part of the month is my own story about an initiative that's going on with a possible Stargate revival. But basically the lead up to this idea of reviving Stargate is from Stargate Origins because MGM has taken sort of a different tack than most in the competitive streaming subscription market by instead of charging a monthly fee for their streaming service Stargate Command, it's just a $20 flat fee. And that gets you the back catalog of Stargate SG-1, Stargate Atlantis, Stargate Universe, and even the movies The Ark of Truth and Continuum. In addition to the new short form series Stargate Origins, Which kind of takes a look at that initial discovery of the Stargate by Professor Paul Langford and then the subsequent role his daughter Catherine Langford played in studying the alien portal in the 1930s. So the origins idea is really cool, but it's a web series in essence. And so it's not necessarily, and would you agree with this, Dave, the perfect reintroduction of such an epic franchise?
2: I think the fandom is out there, and I think Joseph Malozzi realizes that. And whether this is the way to do it, I'm not sure. But I, I think fans of Stargate, which obviously we both are, we're we're going to manage to see it. So yeah, pony up to 20 bucks and go from there.
1: Yeah. And then the property could grow. And I guess that's the point. And Joseph Malozzi, who executive produced for the three original series, thought to himself, you know what? There must be a better way for MGM to gauge viewer interest in a fourth Stargate franchise entry. So he has put together a fan campaign through a Twitter account called Stargate now with which he plans to tweet storm MGM during a very specific window. It's going to be March 9th at 6 PM, nine Eastern for North American fans and March 10th at eight GMT, 8 PM GMT for an hour. So he's going to have this specific hashtag. That's going to be revealed 15 minutes ahead of time. And then Melozzi sees this as an opportunity to prove to MGM that fan support is out there for a fourth series and kind of to educate fans on how to use the power of Twitter correctly to advocate for their shows. So I think this is a really cool thing on a number of levels. What's his goal in all this? Well, he wants Stargate creators, Brad Wright and Robert Cooper to produce not a reboot, not a continuation of Stargate Universe or Stargate Atlantis, but a brand new series. So here's what he thinks that might look like. You know, I'm suggesting a show that new viewers can step into and enjoy and, you know, not be confused by the mythology and, and, you know, essentially discover, just like any new fan. Whereas because it is in canon, it offers opportunities for old fans to basically maybe be reunited with familiar faces. Okay. And so he wants to basically have this fourth spinoff be of. Normal scale for a Stargate series, not the web series that Stargate Origins presents, in order to get MG, MGM's Stargate Command going. And he even opened up the possibility that if the Stargate Command service broadens its scope to other sci fi, he might even be able to do a, a Dark Matter miniseries, which is the other sci fi property he produced. So I think he's got a cool idea.
2: <laughs> I do. And you just wonder whether the guys in suits that are writing the checks are always just one step behind what the reality is of the moment i mean he gets it and and certainly he tried his best with dark matter and it certainly seems as if he was as successful as he could possibly be using social media to get dark matter another season but you know the network didn't buy it still as you said uh, he's got to educate the viewers and, and they're the ones that are going to make things happen
1: right and of course if you want to look at the full interview which does talk about dark matter and what happened with sci-fi. In addition to the Stargate initiative, uh, you can read my interview with Joseph Malozzi at denofgeek.com. Cool.
2: All right. Now, you know, I've said many times, I really don't have much of a background in the comics world. I really didn't read comics as a kid. I had about a year where I read Superman, but, you know, that was so long ago, it doesn't even count. So, you know, when I started reading about The Tick, I was thinking, like, all right, what kind of superhero is this? So (laughs) followers of genre TV have no doubt run across the name of Ben Edlund, who's been associated with shows like Firefly, Angel, Gotham, Revolution, and this little show that just won't die supernatural. But except for Gotham, these are all shows I love. And sorry, Gotham fans. (laughs) I gave it a try. But what I didn't know is that he created The Tick back in the mid 80s as a promotional piece for a local comic store in his town. And as they say, the rest is history. So what about the history of The Tick, which is now back and streaming on Amazon Prime?
1: Well, you know, what's funny, Dave. (laughs) You didn't even know this when you picked this. I didn't collect comics very much either. But the two titles I collected as a high schooler and college student were The Green Lantern and The Tick. And in fact, I wanted so badly this rare issue of The Tick that I wrote in to the editors of Dark Horse Comics. And my letter is featured in one of the issues of The Tick, the original printing. So this was a series that's near and dear to my heart. And I was glad to see that it seems to be reaching some success on Amazon.
2: Yeah. And that's not surprising when you learn about really the approach that it takes. So. We mentioned it got its start in the mid eighties. Well, fast forward to 1994 and Fox gives it a go as an animated series of The Tick. And season one was certainly a critical success. But unfortunately, Fox had its eye and coffers on the associated toy line that the network anticipated would follow. And, and when it didn't, the show ended up getting canceled. Fortunately, Fox decided to bring in a star-studded voice cast, which includes Mark Hamill, who we know from Star Wars, Roddy McDowell, Lorraine Newman, Xander Berkeley, and the tick took off. So now we're at 2001. If animation works, let's try live action, budgetary issues. And the fact that Fox didn't actually own the show caused as many problems as its slot Opposite reality show juggernaut Survivor.
1: Whose bright idea was that?
2: (laughs) Well, yeah, you look at a lot of shows and and you wonder. and, And certainly, we've talked about the Friday night death slot many, many times. And and I think we'd all agree that that's not so much a big deal anymore. And yeah, it can be a comfortable slot for for many shows. But you know, like a lot of shows with this kind of history, the fan base has remained strong. So when Amazon decided to bring back Edlin's baby once again, it it seemed to make perfect sense. And, you know, while things like the tick suit remain an integral part of the show, obviously some changes have been made to keep up with the times and technology. Um, The fake looking abs are are gone. (laughs) But at its core, the tick remains a satire of superhero shows. And I think this is probably what caught your attention
1: yeah it was a funny superhero i th- think i really enjoyed the humor of it
2: all right well speaking of fake looking abs let's take a listen to this clip about the costume
0: are you wearing some kind of super suit then
3: i'm not sure i follow the question there chum
0: i mean uh, are you wearing some outfit or is it just you whoa
3: am i never naked or am i never not naked
2: <laughs> All right. So, you know, at its core, The Tick remains a satire of superhero shows. Character relationships drive a lot of the humor. And if you want to read a lot more about The Tick, check out Ron Hogan's story, The Tick, The History of a Laugh-Out-Loud Superhero Satire at denofgeek.com.
1: All right. And I, I definitely enjoyed uh, looking through some of the clips. I haven't gotten to check out the show, but it definitely looks like it's in the spirit of the original comic. Now, one topic that I wanted to bring up purely just for the discussion of it, because it's not a new story, but, you know, we have these stories on Den of Geek where we update the original story. If new news comes out, like if a new cast member was added or a new trailer is added to a show, we keep these news hubs updated. And one of them has been for Terminator six. So the news that Arnold Schwarzenegger is coming back for a sixth Terminator movie is not new, nor is the fact that Tim Miller who's known for his work on the successful Deadpool movie adaptation will be directing the as yet untitled Terminator movie. But with the announcement on February 20th, that production was scheduled to begin in May, a relatively minor blip of an announcement. I just figured it was time for you and I, Dave to discuss this crazy plan for bringing in a story that completely ignores as they're planning the occurrences of the fifth movie in 2015 Terminator Genesis. They're just pretending Like it never happened.
2: Well, you know, I think anybody that's a fan of the Terminator series, as you know, most sci-fi fans are, and certainly you and I love anything to do with time travel, I think after Terminator 2, we're starting to think, come on, get it right this time. (laughs) So I think maybe the sixth time's the charm that (laughs) that they'll get it right this time. And certainly, as you said, totally ignoring Genesis obviously (laughs) says what a lot of us feel
1: (laughs) yes you'd think they could sort of figure out a way to i don't know undo the undo that genesis did because it's time travel you know you can do that kind of thing but instead they're just going to act as if it never happened and in fact they're billing it as coming after the events of terminator two judgment day so even rise of the machines and salvation are going to be tangential at best So Cameron previously said that the production was searching for an 18 year old actress to serve as the new centerpiece of the story, which kind of begs the question, who's this new character that this young actress would play? What's her role going to be in this established story arc? Because we've pretty much memorized the whole lineup of people involved in this rebellion and uprising. And there's not a girl in there. So is it going to be like John Connor's sister? What's going to happen here?
2: Can Summer Glau pass for 18?
1: <laughs> yeah, sure. But the coolest news of it that came out late last year was that Linda Hamilton is set to join the cast as Sarah Connor. And she's been wooed for the Terminator franchise before and has turned it down. So you have to wonder what did they put on the table for her character? Because, of course, her aging can be explained. And in fact, might actually be helpful in telling the story, whereas Schwarzenegger's character, the Terminator aging, that's a little bit trickier to explain, but it is a hurdle that they've dealt with in other sequels. So let's play a quick clip from a Hollywood reporter interview with Miller talking about Hamilton's involvement and how it might be useful.
2: And I think what makes Linda interesting more now is that it would have been so similar to what her character was then. I think here we have a chance to, to really show the cost of the decisions she made in Terminator 2, as meaningful as she was to gender and to uh, action stars everywhere, I think it's going to make a huge fucking statement to have that be in the seasoned
1: warrior that she's become. So it'll be exciting to see what they do with these familiar characters, including Linda Hamilton, to supposedly give Cameron's beloved franchise a proper ending. I'm always cautiously optimistic about things like this, but production begins in May. Like I said, that was the the February announcement. And the release date is set for July of 2019. So something to look forward to.
2: Yeah, and Linda Hamilton, you know, joined the cast of Lost Girl for a brief time and, and was just one.
3: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door go to blue nile.com and use promo code listen to get fifty dollars off your purchase of five hundred dollars or more that's code listen at bluenile.com for fifty dollars off your purchase blue nile.com code listen
0: everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist
2: typical badass self so she was on
1: defiance uh, too actually for a few oh right (laughs) that's
2: right so looking forward to it all right and for my third piece i'm gonna talk a little bit about oscar this year because we've got the 2018 academy awards just around the corner and you know if you're into the award scene which i know a lot of us are you're going to want to check out david Crow's oscars 2018 nominees winner predictions and analysis at, at den of geek but By its very nature, the Oscars generates controversy from the films and the individuals nominated all the way to the end result of who gets to carry home the little gold statue. So what's on the agenda this year? Well, is The Shape of Water still the front runner for Best Picture? I mean, we've got Dunkirk, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, who seem poised to spoil the party for Shape of Water. But You know, there are also a lot of films that have garnered multiple nominations like Darkest Hour, Lady Bird, Get Out. And, you know, all those films that I just mentioned seem destined to bring home at least one trophy.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of competition that it would be one of those cases where whoever won, I think we would be happy and satisfied.
2: Yeah. And I think what's different this year, and and perhaps it's an offshoot of the hashtag Me Too movement, One-time favorite in the Best Actor category, James Franco, appears to be on the outside looking in at this point. Uh, Christopher Plummer replaced Kevin Spacey in All the Money in the World and at 88 years old is the oldest ever nominee. And... I mean, we all know genre films, particularly superhero films, don't generate a lot of interest from Academy of Voters, but we have Logan up for Best Adapted Screenplay Awards. So it's really uh, an exciting year, and and I guess you could argue it, it always is. There's always a lot of buzz, always a lot of controversy. Well, that can be part of the fun as well. <laughs> exactly. And unfortunately, politics always plays a role in the awards field, whether it's music, film or television. But, you know, as I said, with the Me Too movement, we're, we're in an environment that's fueled by social media that has dramatically reshaped the voting landscape. And the 2018 Oscars are likely going to send a message that's going to reverberate for years to come. However, what that message Will be remains unclear. So if you are a fan of the Oscars, really, David Crow goes down category by category best picture, best actress, best actor, director, supporting actress, supporting actor, 11 other categories. Check them out. Oscars 2018 nominees, winner predictions and analysis at Den of Geek.
1: And David Crow's prediction record is pretty good. So. <laughs> I would put a lot of uh, credibility behind those. Uh, But I'm going to finish up here with someone who's been in the spotlight in the movies before. And that's M. Night Shyamalan, who actually is going to be taking a dip into the television field, apparently, because although he just endured the official cancellation of his secretly post-apocalyptic Wayward Pines, he certainly didn't have to wait very long for his television hopes to rebound. So that's a good thing. That's because he just closed a deal with Apple that will see him create and direct a yet to be titled thriller series. So Shyamalan's deal with Apple has yielded a 10 episode straight to series order for the television project. So to create a mystery series is, is the goal here. It's described kind of vaguely in reports as a psychological thriller, which actually doesn't surprise you much if, if you know Shyamalan's work, but interestingly enough, the thriller project will distinguish itself in terms of a format for such a drama because it's actually going to be a half hour series rather than a full hour. And I think that's kind of cool, you know, cause Apple's trying to stand out. They're trying to get started late in this game of streaming services and they've got to build their back catalog. So they're kind of on a spending spree to get as much as they can. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's, that's being lined up already, including Steven Spielberg's beloved 1980s anthology series, amazing stories. Which I loved as a kid, and I would love to see what they do with it in this modern time. But they've also got Ronald D. Moore of Outlander and BSG fame. He's going to be producing a new space drama, and you know, space and Ronald D. Moore are like chocolate and peanut butter. So, a lot of different properties coming to this Apple streaming service. And I was very happy to see Shyamalan kind of experience a resurgence with his 2016 horror thriller split. Basically because of the fact that it was this quasi sequel to his 2000 classic Unbreakable, that really cool original style superhero movie origin story of sorts. So, and the fact that there's a proper sequel in the works in 2019 glass, which will reunite Samuel L. Jackson and Bruce Willis. So uh, the star is rising once again for Shyamalan and I'm excited to see what he does with a TV show on this new service. Okay,
2: hold, hold on a second, Mike. Uh, I got to send Apple my credit card number here. <laughs> <laughs> Take my money. <laughs> Pay for yet another streaming service. But yeah, it it is what it is. I mean, we talk about cutting the cord and, and just really going a la carte. And, it, you know, it's tough to argue with that. I mean, outside of live sports, I think most of us could do without you know regular cable service or satellite.
1: Yeah, I don't mind seeing it go in this direction, this trend and and letting us choose that way. But um if you want to read more about this particular deal, Joseph Baxter has a write-up on M Night Shyamalan's move to Apple. In fact, I forgot to mention Joseph Baxter and editor-in-chief Mike Cicchini put together the uh earlier piece that I talked about for Terminator 6. So lots of stuff to read on denofgeek.com for February. And uh, we hope you enjoyed all the different things that uh, the site has had to offer in the past few weeks. But one thing that you can only get on this podcast is the bonus content. And we're going to go directly into Daniel Curlin's interview with Mitch Pileggi, one of our favorite characters and actors on the X-Files. Dave, would you agree?
2: (laughs) I would. And in fact, I've got uh, an episode ready to watch on my DVR as soon as we're done.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And this was a good one. Uh, The uh, episode that, they're going to be talking about slightly is the one that gives a little backstory for Mitch Pileggi, And so let's go ahead and take a listen to the interview that Daniel Curland had with this great X-Files actor.
0: It's truly a rarity when a television series can become as much of a cultural touchstone as something like The X-Files. The series was not only one of the most popular television series through the 90s, but it's a program that largely popularized serialized storytelling and the larger myth arcs that such shows often hold up as their backbone. The X-Files made the supernatural feel accessible and unlimited, and even though this is a series that delights in horror and government conspiracies, it would also establish the model of how versatile a procedural show can be Ways to experiment and indulge in genre. Many classic television shows have recently seen reboots, revivals, or some kind of resurgence, but few have been met with as much enthusiasm as Fox's return to the X-Files. While the show's 10th and 11th seasons have met mixed reactions and fueled many controversial opinions on the show's current relevance, the series is still turning out creative stories and finding ways to honor its famous characters. For instance, the new season of the show finally allows the X-Files to dig into the character of a assistant director Walter Skinner and offers up some answers in regard to his history and personal life. We got the opportunity to catch up with Skinner's actor, Mitch Pileggi to talk about his character showcase from this season and the many ways in which a series like The X-Files has changed and evolved through 11 seasons and a resurrection. Skinner has been a part of the X-Files since its beginning, but he's, like, typically in the background of the action. There have been episodes like Avatar that have, like, shined a little light on him, but he's still largely a mystery, I think. Like, was it satisfying to finally get an episode like this that really digs into Skinner's past?
3: Um, I, I, was, I was very gratified that they, that they gave me this episode, and they gave it to Gabe Water, who did a wonderful job, I think, you uh, writing it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I'm Carol Banker. Director, who was our script supervisor on the last four seasons of the X in Los Angeles. Was beloved because those two, you know, between David and, and Carol, they both know the characters well as I I think. And to have them involved in it was very cool. In addition to the fact, like you say, that they finally got around to, to telling telling his story. It was tight It's been touched on in past episodes, and you now you can actually see it play out, which I was i was happy about.
0: You. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Throughout the years, did you ever like try and create your own history and backstory for Skinner? to, like, help get in his head? Like, did you picture him in the Army, like... Well, I knew
3: he was a Marine. I knew his, his background was a Marine. He had a body system. So they gave me quite a bit of stuff a long time ago about his, his background. So that was always there for me to, to play with and touch upon. So as time went on, I, I you know, yeah, in my own mind, I kind of expanded, you know, upon what they had given me. Just character stuff. So it was, they did give me a lot of real
0: Awesome. I love where this episode is set with Skinner, but like, would you be interested in doing episodes that highlight more of Skinner's past, but are set during his tenure with the FBI? Still, like, looking at Skinner's time at the bureau before Mulder and Scully enter the picture? I would mean, be I mean, I, I don't you know. I don't, think, I don't know the storyline. The <laughs> you
3: know, when, when they spun off the lone they'd done their own series, I, was, I went to Korea, I'd go, well, what about-?
1: Yeah, and, and so you see, you know, you you, you, you get a look at you know, where
3: he lives, and I guess it's fairly Spartan, and the fact he's got methadone. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> this... I thought about it was hilarious. I'd always stressed Skinner being perpetually consecrated. <laughs> so he had fun with that. Methadone on a must
0: in that game. Awesome. This episode like explores in a really poignant way the first time that Skinner becomes disillusioned with the government and like learns that they can do wrong. Talk a little on what this means for him and, like, the decisions that he has to make in the past regarding Davy's father.
3: Well, I, you know, I, mean, I think our situation in the world right now is really itself to that. It's mm-hmm. just that's, uh, to what's going on. I think it was, You know, the fact that he finds out that these things have been done since one of his buddies from Vietnam, they've done those terrific things to him. I mean, it just really set him off. And, and, and as he says, like, I, don't, I don't care what I have to do to find out what happened and why it happened. I can possible for it. And I love that. Yeah. So where he goes forward from this point in that respect is be very interesting I thought, okay, well, in the storyline. you
0: know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I thought the same thing. I was very happy about that. Mm hmm. It's great. How do you feel about Skinner's overall role in this season? Because he's, like, positioned against Mulder and Scully and, like, stuck in an alliance with the cigarette smoking man. Is this, like, a nice change of pace, or do you prefer that, like, Skinner function as more of, like, a straight good guy, or, like, what do you think? Yeah, well, I think mean, ultimately he's their champion within. Yeah, but still,
3: he's, uh, historically on the show, he's been put in predicaments that he's got to operate yeah. outside the lines of what he has, how he likes to operate, or what he feels comfortable operating, uh, the lines that he considers operating within.
0: It's interesting, because he controls Mulder and Scully to some degree, too, so he has to help them out, but he's also doing the things he has to do with good intentions. Like, he's stuck in an interesting position that is unique to him.
3: Yeah one episode again you know, that Moore says where do you stand because I'm standing on the line you keep crossing you know? so he's, in the past he had to maintain his position within the FBI the bureaucracy and I think a lot of it you have to maintain that so that he to, you know, accommodate mental health that I possibly can without, you know, screwing up his potential to give them, give them aid. I think it, it shows that in innocent speech in this episode where, you know, all the most stands. But I think I think it's, it's interesting to pair him up, not to uh, pair him up, but to pick him up with the cigarette smoke you know, that, that he has to get to try to figure out exactly, you know, the right way to go about things so that he can continue to do what he's always done in, in regards to, to a for the rest, they're, they're up and down for the rest of you. So, so you're always gonna you know,
0: even though at the end of this episode Mulder Synag isn't you know what were with you it's like are you? Are yeah you really what you said about in the past
3: and it doesn't always it
0: doesn't always play out. Yeah, absolutely. You know I, mean? I guess just like off of that too, in this episode there's that really telling statement from Kirsch about how like Mulder and Scully are to blame for Skinner's kind of stagnant career with the Bureau. What's your take on that and their complicated relationship there? because I it's so often people go,
3: why is Skinner still an assistant director and mm-hmm. I why. And my answer is always been, you know, because of an association with Morgan Scully that's held them back. We find out that, you know, that's so true.
0: It's great. Overall, do you have a favorite episode from the entirety of the X-Files or one that really sticks out to you?
3: You know, I've got a couple of them. I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of Darren Morgan, so
0: I have, <laughs> you know, they're, we'll, they're so we'll, good. Yeah, and finally he did. I
3: gave, he, goes, he goes, "Okay, I'm only giving you one line, but it's a hell of a line." And I was like, "Okay, well, I was very happy to be able to be in one of his episodes." But, I mean, your know, Clyde Buck was final repose, unbug.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Him doing a full-out Skinner episode would be really interesting. Yeah, one of my favorite moments, too, is just that bitten in Hollywood AD where you, Mulder and Scully, are in the hot tub. people
3: <laughs> <laughs> like that. Yeah, but it's like, great. You know, I it pretty, pretty
0: funny. Do you have a most memorable moment from filming this new season, or like a moment from this year that really stands out to you?
3: Oh, man, it's great.
0: It's really good. Did
3: you like it? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: It's one of my favorites of the season. Well,
3: thank you. I appreciate that. I was really hoping. And the fact that my nephew gets to
0: play a young version of Skinner I was Oh, that's awesome. About that. I didn't realize. That's yeah. great. Actor Corey Rumpel, he's a local actor
3: up in Vancouver. You know, he's, I, I, I thought, you know, well, I'm going to try to get him a little role, get him a little something on, it, on here. And, and so I got him some audition. He got in the room and, and he actually auditioned twice before he got this role of, of Young Skinner, which is, is interesting because I, I, I auditioned for two other roles before I got Skinner. When mm-hmm. I, so I thought I was to of that parallel. With
0: That's funny. Yeah.
1: All right. And that was a great little bit to end on there, talking about the fact that his nephew. Played young Skinner. And there is a family resemblance there that helped out quite a bit. And I like the fact that he was saying, Hey, listen, the guy got it on his own audition. (laughs) There was no nepotism going on here. He had to audition like everyone else. So a really cool story that Daniel was able to to pull out of Mitch, (laughs) but a lot of great content. We hope you were able to enjoy with this, uh, this interview and all the pieces that we covered. But that's going to be it for this installment of the Den of Geek podcast. Join us again in a few weeks for the March 2018 early edition of G News when we'll hash out the latest from denofgeek.com and share some more behind the scenes content from your favorite TV shows, movies, and more.
2: And if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher,
1: SoundCloud, and more. So thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.